Well, good morning. Welcome to Cook's Hill. Now, I want you to know that I have received a little bit of flack for decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving. So here's what I will say to all of you who want to decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving. It is okay to celebrate Jesus' birth any time of the year and also give thanks. All right, we can do both. We can do both. You know, Christmas is coming, and we are all about relationships. And we say over and over and over and over, we believe that disciples are made in relationship. And so all of the things that we are doing for Christmas are about relationships. They are about connecting with people and about building relationships with people that you maybe haven't built relationships with and inviting people into relationship, not just with our church, but also with the church body and the church family. And so we have things like Christmas carols and cookies, uh, sing cookies. Sing cookies, yes. We are going to sing cookies. Sing carols and eat cookies and hang out and talk and enjoy fellowship and community and, and the Christmas tea. Make sure that you sign up for that if you are a woman. Make sure if you are not a woman that you do not sign up for it. It is a women's event, Christmas tea, and it is so fun. Um, and you get to sit around a table with other people uh, and hang out. We're also doing in December a family Sunday with like kids Christmas crafts and just all sorts of really fun stuff. And so make sure you just block out all of December for church family. Right, we're going to hang out. We're going to have a good time. We're going to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And we are going to enjoy all of it, hopefully. So it will be fun. And mark your calendars. Also, if you want to help decorate for Christmas, it will be after Thanksgiving. And so it will be okay. And so come and help decorate for Christmas after Thanksgiving. But today we are in our second to last week on how our church family functions as a whole. And how our structure is designed, how we sort of do life as a church together. Um, and we're going through some different things. And next week we're going to talk about um, the idea of multiplication and how churches should multiply. And that will be a really, really good conversation. And today is the second to last day. Um, and it is around evangelism and witnessing. Now, typically in the church... A conversation around evangelism or witnessing is a combination of shame plus a practical skill. You should be telling people about Jesus and here's how. You know what I'm talking about? There's this idea when the church talks about evangelism that you should be doing X and here's how you should be doing X. And I have preached evangelism that way myself many times. And if you've been in the church, you've probably heard it. And over the years, the how, there's always the you should be, and then there's the how. And the how has evolved over time. So we're going to take a little bit of a history dive into uh, the church. Because over the years, the how has sort of evolved into different conversations. In the 1930s, somewhere between the development of screen printing and inkjet printing, before there were printers in every home and there was probably one print shop, uh, a guy said, you know what, can I use your printer to print a Jesus pamphlet? And out of that was born the tract industry, a heavily stranger-oriented, end-of-life-based messaging system about the gospel. 
Then at some point in the 1950s, there was the Billy Graham movement, the revival meetings, the tent meetings, the big gatherings of lots of people. And those began to grow in popularity in the 1950s. Then came the rise of child evangelism, where people were meeting in schools and providing after-school programs about Jesus, and that gained some real popularity. And then somewhere between the 1950s and the 1960s, when sitcoms began to be a thing, and they were growing in popularity with the birth of I Love Lucy, which I saw some of last night because I thought I should probably know what I'm talking about. So this I Love Lucy thing was boosted by the fact that in a 10-year span, uh, TVs in homes went from 8,000 homes in the U.S. to 45 million. And then in typical church trend, about 10 years later, TV evangelism became a thing. Because if you watch the trends, the church usually follows about 10 years behind. Uh, And so TV evangelism really started to take off in 1970. Later, it evolved from street preaching and tent revival meetings into street conversations, kind of the in-person tract, like going out in twos and having conversations with strangers and stopping to tell people about Jesus in the streets. I remember spending, because I grew up in the church, I remember spending a few weekends in Seattle on busy streets, and, and the style of evangelism at the time was you'd like walk up to someone you didn't know, and you'd be like, do you know where you're going when you die? And then usually they would respond with something like, uh, are you planning to kill me? Like, what is happening right now? If you were following Jesus in 2007, you might remember Ash Wednesday evangelism, where churches would provide ashes to go. And you'd go out on Ash Wednesday to evangelize, which oddly enough followed about 10 years after the food to go went mainstream. At one point, evangelism was highly talked about as telling your testimony. I mean, you guys remember this part of being a part of the church. Highly talked about as telling your testimony, which became hard for people who grew up in the church because it was sort of like, you need to tell your story, um, and even if you didn't go to jail, your story's still cool, and your story will still point people to the gospel. And so whether you grew up in church or not, the whole tell your testimony thing became tell your story, learn how to tell your testimony, and even if you didn't go to jail, you still have a testimony that will point people to Jesus, and that's great. And so this was this whole conversation that was happening and then later on it became signs and bullhorns and all of these strategies on some level still exist but they've seen their rise and fall in popularity with the cultural trends and cultural willingness to put up with whatever the strategy is at the time or the cultural response to said strategy that is currently in effect. At one point, it was the if you build it, they will come. This idea that, that big auditorium-style churches were the way to go and that if you build something big and it had a big auditorium, then like crowds will show up. And now there's a pretty big push towards friendship evangelism. 
Tell your friends, invite your friends, evangelize to your friends, get your friends to show up, talk to your friends about Jesus, tell all your friends about Jesus, tell your story to your friends, invite them to this, this, and this. And, and this conversation is often backed up by stats, and I can say this because I've preached this before. It's backed up often by stats, and you've heard me say, I'm sure, at some point, that 82% of people will come to church if you just invite them. Remember that stat? It's a real stat um, found on the real internet. Um, but there's this idea that like now, instead of if you build it, they will come. It's if you invite them, they will show. And all of these evangelism styles, they have some type of practical training or how-to. And that practical trainer how-to has sort of fit whatever it was at the time, whether it was how to hand out a track, how to have a conversation about do you know where you're going when you die, or how to, whatever it is at the time, how to lead a child after school Jesus program, how to build a building, how to whatever it is, there's this big how-to in that space and and it's usually some conversation of you should be doing this and here's how we're doing it because as a church going people we all sort of know this idea that like we should be telling people about Jesus and then whatever's happening at the time and culture the church sort of just like picks up and says, okay, we're going to do it this way, and then, okay, we're going to try this way, and okay, maybe we'll try it this way. And that's happened for years and years and years. And even in the Gospels, you can see there's not a uh, denying of the pattern of evangelism strategies there either. There's door-to-door meetings. There's traveling from town to town. There's big open-air settings with public speaking and preaching. And then there's individual conversations. And there's miracles that happen inside of homes. And so the evangelism strategy, even in Scripture, is sort of multiple uh, different things. And and today I want to have a conversation around evangelism that will neither have shame. That's sort of, you should be doing X sort of conversation, or really any practical tips either. Helpful, I know. (laughs) Very helpful. (laughs) Because the thing is, we know the message of the hope that we have and that we should share with other people, but on some level, no amount of seminary, no amount of training, no amount of going to the class on how to evangelize, even as a pastor, no amount of that extra skill that you learn how to do so that when you see the cashier, you can lead them to Jesus, really actually ends up happening. And I think it's because somehow we've taken evangelism and we've just said this is something we can train for. We've taken this idea of evangelism and we've said we can create a step-by-step process that will lead people to Jesus and then everybody needs to know the step-by-step process that will lead people to Jesus. And, And on some level, we can't do that because evangelism isn't a practical skill. It's a matter of the heart. So what happens when someone gets in a new relationship or they get engaged? 
They post on Facebook, they share the photos, they get a professional photographer, they do an engagement shoot, they talk about it with everyone they meet, they display their ring as often as they can, hoping someone notices, and I will tell you that when I got engaged, I think that for a while people thought I did not know what to do with my hands anymore because I would be sitting like, hello, hi, hi, how are you? Like, your hands are just, like, all over the place now. And people are like, what is going on? Like, have they forgotten how to use their hands when they talk? Because you want someone to notice that ring because you're so excited. That's a real story, by the way. That ring signals a matter of the heart. And what is in the heart is what comes out in life. And so as a church a collective whole, no amount of practical training or skills development course or strategy topic or conversation will really produce evangelism. It will not give us more witness to the kingdom and oftentimes it actually does the opposite. Because if you train for evangelism without the heart, it could do a lot more damage than good. Luke 6.45, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. I would like to venture that evangelism can simply be a combination of wonder and personality. A heart filled with wonder is the greatest witness. Because typically in evangelism training and then a date on the calendar to go do evangelism is not going to make evangelism happen. What precedes telling people about Jesus in so many stories throughout the entire Bible is a sense of wonder and a sense of awe of God. We see it in John when Jesus meets with the woman at the well and out of her wonder, she just takes off to go tell her entire city what Jesus said. We see it in Acts 2.42 where it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those that were being saved. Out of wonder and awe, they shared what God was doing. We see it in Luke after Jesus performs a healing, and immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things today. We see it again in John when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus calling Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. We see it a few times in scripture when Jesus specifically says, don't tell anyone because I don't want to be delayed. Or when he says, go tell everyone because I know you're going to because this story is radically changing your life and you are filled with wonder and awe. But the key element in every single one of these spaces where people went out to tell people about Jesus was that they were in awe 
of Jesus. And so rather than a training to say, here's how to evangelize, here's how to talk about Jesus, if we feel that we are lacking in the area of telling others about Jesus, it's worth examining if we've lost our sense of awe and wonder. If our witness is lacking, our wonder may also be lacking. These two things work hand in hand. And I would like to venture that one without the other is probably not super healthy. So number one, witnessing or evangelism is more about the heart than we know. Or than we've kind of been buying into. And if our heart is filled with wonder, then the witness is sort of this automatic and ease result that comes from it. But there's one other thing that I think is really true when it comes to evangelism and witnessing that we see throughout Scripture. That as a pastor, uh, I have gotten wrong um, many times, and, um, and I think that conversation is shifting a little bit in a good way. There's a temptation in the church to say, if your heart is filled with wonder, then there's one way to do evangelism. And so as a church, if you, if you are filled with the wonder of God and you've given your life to Jesus or you've revisited the story of Jesus and you are filled with wonder and awe, then as a church, we have commonly said, okay, here's what you got to do. So here's how you're going to do it. Here's our plan for you. Here's how you're going to take the wonder that you have of God and you're going to tell the whole city about Jesus. And here, here's exactly how you're going to do that. And so we've got this wonder part, and then we've got this tell other people about him part, and then we usually say, okay, then do it this way. And for some, that's been really hard. Because maybe their personality and who they are isn't that one way. I had a friend who was in her 80s, and she would go out in front of Safeway, and she would take Bibles and she would give out Bibles, and she would pray for people, and she would love them, and she would come back with stories of how God moved in radical ways, in amazing ways, and she would come back and say, I gave this Bible to this person, and they told me about how they thought that Jesus had let them down, and I was able to pray with them, and, and they realized that like all this, all this amazing stuff, and then I had another friend, and if she did that, she would have had a heart attack and died. And so instead, she taught kids' classes on Sunday mornings because she could talk to kids about Jesus. But it would have killed her to stand in front of a Safeway and hand out Bibles. But often as a church, we've ended up with this sort of cultural trend-based evangelism strategy. You have a wonder and awe of God, and you need to do this with it. Then we try to get everybody to do the same exact thing. Most of us work or live somewhere on this planet. And the greatest witness that we have is oftentimes the many non-believing people that we will run into throughout our day in whatever field we work in. Many are called to be medical professionals, <coughs> doctors, nurses, counselors, Teachers, parents, organizers, cleaners, directors, 
And your witness in those fields is incredibly important. And when we do this conversation where evangelism looks like this, we miss the fact that God has probably already placed you where your evangelism could be the greatest. And so this is sort of like the most important thing in this whole conversation is that how we evangelize may need to be personalized to our story. So here's where the combination of wonder plus personality comes into play. God did not call us to be anyone but who he designed us to be. He made us, he made our gifts, he made our skills, he made the career that we are in, and for kingdom purpose, he expects us that our wonder of God is displayed within our personalities. Not that our wonder of God is just displayed, but that our wonder of God is displayed within our personality. Colossians 4, 5 through 6 says this, Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. Some versions of this scripture say, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. Now, a lot of times what the church has done with this is we've taken that you'll have the right response for everyone part and said, let's just train everybody for the right response. A through Z, the Romans road, like we've been through all of it. We're going to train for the right response. But here's what seasoned with salt means. Seasoned with salt was used to refer to witty, amusing, clever, humorous speech. Their saltiness will prevent them from being ignored as irrelevant bores. Godliness is not ebb equated with dodginess. Flat formulas or lifeless platitudes do not capture the gospel's excitement. It must be made palatable with a savory combination of charm and wit. This is what's in the commentary for the definition of seasoned with salt. Now, most of what we train for is not a stand-up comedic routine of Jesus. And should you know the right answers to the best of your ability? But does it mean that you need to sit and memorize all of these things? And, and, and as you memorize it, it gets less and less personal and, and less and less seasoned with salt because it's just become something that we've memorized. The idea of letting our conversation with people who do not know Jesus be seasoned with salt is this idea that it's not something that we've just regurgitated because we've memorized it, but it's a part of who we are. And who we are gets to be a combination of our wonder of God and our personality at work. If our witness is pushed to this evangelism that is outside of our design, it will probably risk falling in the not seasoned with salt definition. A little bit flat. Maybe it feels inauthentic. And this doesn't mean that you'll never be asked to step outside your comfort zone. Like, that is not what this means. But I think it's okay that we say that our witness and our evangelism can be a part of who God created us to be. And that's okay. Whether that's helping recovering addicts address their trauma that gets them into a space where they can remain sober, or whether it's gathering people around coffee shops because you love really good coffee, or maybe it's group taco truck hopping because your personality is tacos. And maybe 
It's that God has called you to a space where you can lead people to Jesus within the context of hiking. Because you love hiking and hiking church is a possibility. See, we believe that disciples are made in relationship. And I really believe that we have permission as a church to make disciples within relationships that gel with our personalities where we get to be who we are and who God has called us to be and gather around common interests and the things that we enjoy with other people. But let's for a moment consider, as we sort of finish the conversation this morning around evangelism, wonder, and personality, let's consider the personalities of the disciples and the apostles. All of them led many people to Jesus. They were filled with wonder and awe. They made many, 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 many disciples. And sometimes we forget that the apostles and the disciples did different things. Sometimes we, we run on the assumption that the apostles and the disciples, well, they knew Jesus, and they knew they were supposed to go out and tell the world, and so they went out by two by two, and they told everyone that they met about Jesus, and they knocked on every door, and like there's sort of this one way that all the disciples functioned, and they all had this one personality that allowed them to do the one thing. And that's like a really common way to think about it. And I've thought about it that way many times, and only recently did I really start in my own research, breaking down some of the personalities of the disciples and the apostles. Because we forget that they are human, with very human personalities, and very human ways of making disciples. So let's start with Peter. Peter was a strong-willed, courageous, he was a well-known leader, he was quick to speak, impulsive, frank, bold, a little bit rash, inconsistent, he was comfortable with public speaking. We know him for his moment of sinking in the water because in his impulsiveness, he said, I got this Jesus. And then he said, I don't got this Jesus. And so he's got this sort of personality that's inconsistent and impulsive. And at the same time, he's bold and courageous and, and publicly preaching Jesus in big settings and, and big ways. But still very human. And then there's Andrew. Andrew led Peter to Jesus. Andrew has never been recorded public speaking ever in the Bible. He was a quiet, organized person, detail-oriented, very methodical, very uh, sort of slower to speak. He was sort of common sense oriented, very stable, and we wonder why he hung out with Peter. And so there's this space where Andrew provided the, the quiet, patient, harmonizing approach to Peter's quick to speak, impulsive space and sort of added this balance. And, and both of them led many people to Jesus and they made disciples in two very different ways using almost none of the same skills, gifts, or personality types both in the public eye and behind the scenes. Let's talk about James and John. How many of you have heard of James and John being referenced as the Sons of Thunder? Yeah, you know why? Because their personalities were stormy. They were hot-headed. They were quick to judge, easily angered. And yet they loved Jesus and they made a lot of disciples. 
then there's Lydia. She was a business owner in town. She was the primary breadwinner of her household. She was assertive, perceptive. And then there's Thaddeus. How many of you guys know who Thaddeus is? Lesser known. Lesser known disciple, apostle of Jesus. The only thing we know about Thaddeus would lead us to believe that he was a deeply feeling person. He needed to not just logically understand that Jesus loved him. He needed to feel it. And he needed to feel it in a feelings way. He needed to be emotionally connected to Jesus. And then there's Thomas. We know Thomas is sort of the doubter or the skeptical uh, one. And he had a lot of questions. He was prone to needing proof. Like, you know those people? They always need proof. They need proof of everything. Thomas was that guy. He needed proof. He was a you-can't-see-the-forest-through-the-trees kind of a person. And he's recorded for being able to help people who had a lot of questions understand Jesus and sort of take that, that person who was really trying to figure out how they could believe the story they're hearing. He was the one who said, I, I can walk through that with you because I have questioned all the same things that you have questioned. He was sort of the deconstruction church way of life. Like he had to deconstruct everything and find every piece of all of it and sort through to what was the main thing and then go from there. And then there was Paul. Paul was kind of an all-or-nothing guy. He often felt deserted. His writings would tell us that he always felt betrayed by other people. He was logical and decisive and not super feelings-oriented. He contemplated systems and organizational issues and, and strategized, but, but his non-feeling side led to a struggle in close personal relationships. So Paul didn't have a lot of friends. And he often lacked in factoring in feelings or sort of the middle ground when making decisions. And you get this in Paul's writings. You know, Paul's writings of like, you're hot or you're cold, you're married or you're single, you're this or you're that. And there's like no in between, right? Because that's how Paul was. He was a kind of no balance guy, like at either ends of the story, kind of a person. And all of the apostles and all of the disciples of Jesus made disciples. They led people to Jesus. But they did it within their personalities. Business owners, system analysts, behind-the-scenes organizers, caring and kind, consoling conversationalists, easily angered justice fighters, wealthy, generous, highly popular individuals and, and low-laying, under-the-radar, super-under-the-surface kind of people, quiet or common-sense-oriented or fast decision-making. All these things played into who the disciples were and how they led people to Jesus. So what does all of this mean as we close? means that you are not called to be an evangelism robot. 
You are called to come alive with the personality that God gave you and the wonder of Jesus. Now turn to your neighbor. Say, you were not called to be an evangelism robot. Amen. You are not called to be an evangelism robot. You are called to come alive with the personality that God gave you and the things that you love in who you are and how you are wired and the wonder of Jesus. And so as we move into this next song, it is an opportunity to praise Jesus and talk about with Jesus the wonder of Jesus. And so if you are in a space where you know your witness is lacking, this is a moment to sort of revitalize a wonder and to just think about the goodness of God. And maybe you're in a place where your heart is filled with wonder and you know how good God is and you see him at work in your life and, and now's your opportunity to say, who am I and how does who am I make a disciple? <laughs> 